You guys can open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 13, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Um, We're going to be taking a look at one of Jesus' final teachings. As you guys know, we've been going through these last few chapters of the Gospel of Mark and heading into the period of time in which he is going to finally give his life up on behalf of our sins and looking at the final things that he has to say to his disciples and to those, of course, who oppose him. And we're going to be looking at a passage that I take to be one of the most misunderstood passages of the Bible. Uh, Now, I do have to say, if you have been with me following what we're doing on Wednesday nights uh, as we go through the book of Revelation, a lot of what we talk about here today is going to be repetition. Um, We have looked at the Olivet Discourse uh, a couple of times, actually, during our time in Revelation. So a lot of this is going to be uh, kind of review for you guys. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm up here is because I have been teaching on this particular subject for, for quite a bit, and so it's kind of fresh in my mind. And so why don't we go ahead and get to it. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1, um, speaking of Jesus, it says, As he went out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. So during this final week, just a reminder, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, which is not where he typically lived. He typically lived further north in the region of Galilee, and most of his ministry was done in that particular region. But they're in Jerusalem during this time for the festival of Passover. And if you guys know, the Jews were expected to be in Jerusalem three times a year for their three principal feasts. And so they're all there, and the, the city is packed because it's full of many more than just the regular Jerusalem residents. And so one of the things that we've seen is, is that Jesus, while in Jerusalem during this final week, has gone into the temple daily to teach. And so as he's finishing up his teaching for the day and as he's leaving the temple buildings, his disciples look at him and they say, teacher, look at the great building, right? See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. They're just reflecting on how magnificent this thing is that they are looking at. And and I do have to say, you know, Tucker mentioned uh, a few weeks ago that we had been to Israel recently, and uh, I stood where this temple used to stand. Uh, I stood on the foundation of that temple. Some of you guys who were with us are out there right now. I stood on that foundation, and I have to say that the foundation itself was magnificent, Um, The new buildings that are there, the the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim shrine, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they pale in comparison to what was there before, but they they themselves are quite ornate and quite giant and quite intimidating to look at. Um, And so I can't even begin to fathom what this whole compound looked like back in that day. But the disciples of Jesus are, are looking at him and saying, Master, this is such an incredibly impressive building. Now, From this, they continue leaving the temple. Jesus uh, says this as they're on their way out. And Jesus answered and said said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they're sitting there, they say this, and then he says, You think these are impressive? Let me tell you, every one of these stones of these buildings is going to be thrown down. Uh, This building is going to be destroyed. And then he just keeps walking doesn't explain himself at all, and they begin to make their ascent up the Mount of Olives. And I do want to show you a picture really quickly of, uh, that, was t- that I took when we were in Israel. This is from the Mount of Olives overlooking the Kidron Valley, and then if you can see kind of uh, from where I'm standing, you go past that valley, and then you see the Temple Mount. You see the foundation of the temple. That would have been the very same foundation that was there way back when Jesus was was teaching. And then you see the golden dome shrine uh, that is called the Dome of the Rock. And um, so that's, you know, that's just to kind of give you a sense of Jesus sitting there on the Mount of Olives. And what he saw and what his disciples saw, it would have looked something like this with the full temple intact. And so after he sits on the Mount of Olives, and you can go ahead and take that down. Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? So again, when they were down in the temple marveling at the buildings, Jesus goes, you think they're impressive? They're all going to be destroyed. And then he just walks. 
So they're, they're sitting here talking amongst themselves going, what's he talking about? And they wait, of course, until they get up there. And now looking out over the Kidron Valley, seeing this building, they go to him and they say, Lord, when is this going to happen? Like, when is this going to be destroyed? And he's going to now give a discourse on what is going to happen and on when it is going to be destroyed. And the thing I want you to remember as we, as we begin to proceed with the text is what we are about to read is a passage that I believe to be one of the most fundamentally misunderstood passages of the Bible. Because when people do read the Olivet Discourse, we're reading Mark 13's version right now, but there's also Matthew 24's version and Luke 21, the one found in Luke 21. People read it and they think that it's talking about the end of time and Jesus's return when the world is going to end. And what I really want you to understand as we move forward is he has, he's not talking about that. He set the stage and the context for what he's talking about, and that is that this temple is going to be destroyed. And then you're going to see that this puts the passages that we're about to read into a very different light. Okay, so just keep that in mind as, as we move forward. Verse 5, Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles, and these are but the beginnings of sorrows. Now, I just want you to reflect back on, you know, your own time as a believer, as a Christian, and the teachings you've heard on this subject. No doubt you've heard people um, quoting these, these lines and always connecting them to the end, right? Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in various places, nation rising against nation. And it has quite an impact on us, right? Um, when things get a little crazy, we stop and we start wondering, is this it? Is now fundamentally the time? I remember when COVID hit um, and we, most of us were kind of in that early phase when you still had a lot of people kind of locked down inside their houses. I don't know if you guys recall, but do you remember that there was an earthquake that hit Idaho? And it felt like a massive earthquake when it hit, right? Um, it wasn't massive for those of you who both experienced real earthquakes elsewhere. Um, it was just massive because in Idaho, I mean, earthquakes don't happen. I, I can't say that I've felt more than five here in my whole, in all my time here, and I've been here for decades. Um, but it felt pretty long and it felt pretty intense. And I remember right after it happened, everybody's like, wait a minute, earthquakes in various places. And I, I got messages, is this the end? Like, is Jesus coming back soon? We're locked down with a, a, a pestilence that's destroying us. We have an earthquake. There are lots of rumors of wars because there are always rumors of wars. And I remember, you know, Tucker and I at the time, we were doing this thing, uh, we called it Tuck and Tom. Now we, we still call our, our podcast we're doing now Tuck and Tom. But we would do an Instagram live uh, chat and people would kind of join in and they'd send questions and things like that. And during this time, that was the focus. Is this the end? Because when you start seeing these kinds of things, you begin to think the end is nigh. When you start to, to hear stories about self-proclaimed messiahs coming and declaring themselves to be the saviors of the world. And no doubt if you've you know, lived for any significant amount of time, you've seen these self-proclaimed messiahs. I remember in high school, David Koresh in Waco, Texas, coming out and proclaiming himself to be Jesus, right? Um, uh, even before that, when I was in elementary school, you had the Bhagwan in, in Oregon. You, all, you have people who come out and say, they're the one, they're the one that God has chosen to, to come and redeem the world, and they are the second coming of Christ and all that kind of stuff. Now, here's the thing. Remember how he framed this. He told them the temple is going to be destroyed. They asked, when is that going to happen? And then he says, here are some things that are going to happen prior to that. Many will come in my name, proclaiming themselves to be me. Do not believe them. Proclaiming themselves to be the Messiah. Now, here's the thing. In the history of Israel, the largest proliferation of people who called themselves Messiah happened during this period of time. It was a period of time when Rome or when Israel had lost its freedom to the Romans and the people of Judea believed 
that there would arise a Messiah who would overthrow Roman rule and would free them and institute the kingdom of God. It is into that that Jesus comes into the world. And you had many such of these guys. I'll just mention a handful of them. These are not all of them. There was a guy named Simon of Perea who led a revolt against the Romans. He proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Judas, of, Judas the Galilean also proclaiming himself the Messiah who was going to usher in the kingdom of the world. A guy named Thutis in 46 AD, 16 years after, roughly after Jesus' death. Um, uh, one of the biggest ones is going to happen significantly later, 132 AD, a guy named Bar Kokhba, Simon Bar Kokhba, I'll talk about him later. These guys pop up and they say, I'm the Messiah, and they get a following and people say, this is our guy. They take up arms, they fight against the Romans, and the Romans kill them all. And that's what happened over and over and over again during this period of time. Jesus also here says, nation will rise up against nation. And sure enough, in the period of time that we're going to be talking about after Jesus' death, before the destruction of the temple, which is going to happen, by the way, in 70 AD, so about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, um, in that period of time in there, right in the mid-60s, Rome is going to fall into a very precarious situation. The Roman emperor Nero, who was worthless, terrible ruler, he ends up being killed. Um, and there is a constitutional crisis because with him died the Julio-Claudian dynasty. The dynasty is finished. Who is going to be the new emperor? And what happens is four different Roman generals, each with their own armies, they all proclaim themselves emperor. And so what happens when you got four guys who all say they're emperor and they have armies? They got to go fight each other to kind of prove who is actually the emperor. And the guy who wins it is going to be a guy named Vespasian. But so, so the, the empire is going through civil war, tremendous turmoil. Now, of course, Rome ruled other peoples. So what starts to happen when they see that civil war is happening and you can't decide who's leading? Well, all the nations around are going to try to break free. They're all going to try to revolt. The Jews were one of those nations. There were others that also tried to revolt against the Romans during this time. So wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, earthquakes, all of these things were happening during this period of time that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the end. He's not talking about his return. He's talking about the fact that this temple is going to be destroyed. Verse 9, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake and for a testimony to them. Now, if you guys have read the book of Acts, you know that what we just read here is described perfectly in the book of Acts. What happened to these early Christians, these, these Jewish Christians like Peter, James, John, Andrew, these guys who followed Jesus, what happened to them? They did preach in synagogues. They did preach to the Jewish people around them. They were cast out of synagogues, just like Jesus said here would happen. They were, it, one of their first Example, one of the first examples in the book of Acts chapter 4, Peter, James, and John go into the temple and they begin preaching the gospel in the temple. And the Sanhedrin, which was the high court of the Jews at the time, have them arrested. And they bring them to them and they try them and the Sanhedrin decides to beat them and forbid them from ever speaking the gospel again and they're cast out of the temple, which is exactly what he's talking about here. He also says here that you will speak before governors and rulers and kings Acts chapters 24 through 26 talks about the Apostle Paul when he is arrested, also in Jerusalem, also in the temple, and he is brought before the Roman procurator, the governor of Judea at the time, a guy named Felix, and he preaches the gospel to the Roman governor, Felix. Felix keeps him in prison for a year, and at the end of that year, there's a new governor, Festus, and Paul preaches the gospel to Festus. Festus brings in a king, King Herod Agrippa II, who was the king of some of the surrounding regions. Herod comes in and he hears Paul preach. Paul shares the gospel with him. And at the end of his sermon, Herod turns to him and he says, Paul, you almost convinced me to become a Christian. And Paul says, I would that you were exactly like me except for these chains Right? And he goes, and I wish that everybody was, that you would all know the wonderful might of Jesus. What's happening is the apostles are being brought before all of these leaders, all of these rulers, sharing the gospel. That's what it's talking about. Now look at this. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now, how many of you guys over the course of your lifetime have heard somebody say, we need to preach 
because we need to get the gospel preached to every single person because once every, once the, every nation has finally heard it, that's going to kind of kick things off. Jesus is going to come. Once the last person hears the gospel, Jesus is going to return. You all heard that? I've heard that my whole life. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. And you might say, but wait a minute, Tom. The gospel wasn't preached to all nations. Well, let's pause. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to flip around to a few spots. Mostly, when I have you flip, I'm doing it so that you don't just take my word for it. It's so that you can see it. So we're going to turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Book of Colossians, chapter 1. Book of Colossians, chapter 1, and verse 6. Actually, we'll back up to verse 3 just so you can kind of see a little bit of context. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So you've all heard the gospel, he's saying there in Colossae. And he says this, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. So it's come to you just as it has in all the world. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Book of Romans, chapter 10, and we'll start in verse um, 16. Paul here also writing says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, meaning not everybody has embraced it. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here Paul's basically giving a justification or a reason for why we Christians need to be preaching the gospel. Faith comes by hearing it, hearing the word of God. And so we need to be preaching it. So that's what he's saying. And then he says this, but I say, have they not heard? Meaning, have the peoples of the world not heard? He goes, yes, indeed. Their sound has, past tense, gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The gospel has indeed gone out to all the world. Now, let me pause here. Were there places where people had not heard the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely there were. But Paul and Jesus here, they're not, in, in both these instances, speaking of like literally every last human being. If you stop and consider for a second, you can know that we will never reach a point where every single last human being is going to actually have heard it because that would be impossible. New human beings are born every single day. New human beings are coming of age every single day, coming to a point where they can hear and receive and believe things. You have to understand that in their day, the world, as they understood it, was much smaller than it is in our day. Not like it was literally smaller, but the way they, they thought of it because they didn't know about the Americas and all that kind of stuff. It's like you just have this region which was the Roman Empire, that was the world, and then there were some places on the fringes of that. But if you remember what Jesus says in the book of Acts, when he ascends into heaven, he says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And those guys, just one generation removed from Jesus, did they go to the uttermost parts of the earth? And the answer to that is absolutely they did. It went all through the empire. Paul definitely went to Rome. Peter definitely went to Rome. There's a strong tradition that Paul said that Paul made it all the way to Spain. There's a tradition that Andrew, Peter's brother, made it to Scotland. Um, no question the gospel was preached in Africa, south of, the North, or south of the Roman Empire, because you had early Christian communities popping up in Africa from way back when. Um, there's really strong evidence that the Apostle Thomas made it all the way to India. Almost every historian thinks that Thomas made it to India because you have early, early communities popping up in India that, that all spoke of Thomas. And a lot of people argue that he made it to China, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is not saying every single individual. He's talking about the fact that before the event I'm going to describe, the gospel is going to go into all the world. It's going to go into all the world, which it has. Continue on verse 11. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. Don't, don't give it a thought. Don't plan out what you're going to say. Whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. And here I do want to pause because we're going we're gonna to talk a lot about history today. And we're going to do a lot of kind of like getting into details on this text. 
pardon me if it's not really your thing. That's going to be what we focus on today. But I do have two very important practical takeaways that I want you guys to bring with you today. And here's one of them. Because this is true in the Apostles' Day, and it's true for you and me today. Just like the Apostles, we are called to be the Lord's witnesses unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what we're called to do. And it's a scary, trepidatious thing for us. It's hard. And we live in a culture that doesn't like confrontation, and it doesn't like it when people, you know, kind of get in their personal and private space. And it's easy to put off the call to preach. I remember when I was 18 years old, I felt kind of the compulsion. I felt compelled to go out and street witness, to go and talk to people about Jesus. And I remember talking to my best friend about it, and he was like, no, 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 we don't understand the Bible well enough. We've got we to gotta go through some real times of study and growth. We've got to read some commentaries, and we've got to get some people mentoring us. We probably need to go to Bible college first. And he has this whole plan of what we're going to go through before we go out and preach the gospel. This thing that is directed towards those apostles is true for us today as it was then. Do not meditate beforehand what you would say. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. Right? And I, I mean, and I've seen this a thousand times. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of friends. I have seen friends who go and they, 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 they don't even know the word very well, but they start to speak and the Lord just speaks through them and the Lord just causes them to say exactly what is needed in that time because he honors that step of willing faithfulness. Whatever, uh, verse 12 now brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And again, this is exactly what we read in the book of Acts. It's exactly the story that is true of this early church. You have Paul the apostle. What was he doing before he was Paul? He was Saul, the persecutor of the church, going out and rounding up his countrymen and killing them right? Brother turned against brother. Parents sold out their own children, which is exactly what Jesus had foretold. He said, do not think that I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword, and I will set father against son and mother against daughter and brother against brother. How? Because he's calling his people to follow him, to be obedient to him, to preach his message, and they're going to be all sorts who are going to be offended, and they're going to turn on their loved ones, and they're going to betray them, and, and that is going to give these guys a feeling of despondency. So things are bad, right? Earthquakes and, and, and wars and rumors of wars and instability, and, and people are going to be turning on their brothers and their sisters and, and all of these things. But he says, but don't worry, because if you endure to the end, you shall be saved. He who endures to the end shall be saved. And one of the things I want you to understand is, is that, again, the context of this particular passage, what people anticipated was that salvation meant that Rome would be overthrown, that the kingdom would be freed, that the kingdom of God would begin there. And he's sitting here telling them, no, actually the opposite is going to happen. The, the city is going to be overthrown. Judea is going to be overthrown. But don't worry because if you endure in faith to the end, you shall be saved. Verse 14, and here we're going to get into the hardest bit of what we're going to read, the bit that might be the most confusing, which involves the most history. So I ask you to bear with me. And actually, before I read it, let me just say something. I wish you guys, but those of you guys who know me know I'm a teacher. And uh, I wish we could do a thing where I could just do hand raising. If you have any questions, just, I could, you could just raise your hand and ask me. That would be an impossibility uh, during this particular time. So the best I can say is afterwards, you can always feel free to come up and ask me a question. Or I teach Revelation on Wednesdays, and we always put a link up where you can send in questions. So check on Facebook or YouTube on Wednesday night, and they will give you that link. So if you have any questions, jot them down, and you can send them in. And Tucker and I will answer them on our, our podcast. So just something to think about. So, verse 14, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in that day, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. So what does he say? He says here, when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel the prophet predicts, run away. That's what he's saying. Run away. 
Now the question is, is what is the abomination of desolation? You may have heard of it talked about in the context of the end of time um, as a thing that the Antichrist will do where there might be a new rebuilt temple and the Antichrist might offer a sacrifice of something that is bad on the altar in this new rebuilt temple or he might set up a statue in that. This is at least not, I'm not saying that would never happen, but I am saying that that's not what this passage is talking about. This is pretty remarkable, actually, the prophecy that he's speaking of, and it often gets confused. So I want to take a look at two passages in the book of Daniel. The first one we're going to look at is Daniel 11, and it's going to be verse 31, and the second one is going to be in Daniel 9. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, we're going to pick up in verse 31, but let me just preface this because we don't have time during the revelation class early in that class, we went through all of Daniel or a good chunk of Daniel 11. Let me just frame it for you this way. Daniel chapters 10 and 11 are prophecies about things that, that if you know your history of the Middle East, you know what it's talking about. Okay. You've probably all heard of Alexander the Great, right? The old Greek king, the Greek king who conquered the Middle East and he conquered Persia, established the, the largest kingdom the world had seen up until his time. And after he died, his kingdom, because he had no children to, to bequeath it to, was divided up between different generals of his. So his kingdom was divided. And chapter 11 focuses in on two of the kingdoms that grew out of his kingdom. It refers to the kings of the north and the kings of the south. The kings of the north were the Seleucid dynasty who ruled in the nation of Syria, and the kings of the south were the Egyptian dynasty ruled by the Ptolemies. Okay, that's what the whole chapter is about. If you know the histories of the kings, you can read through the chapter and you can know exactly which king is being spoken about. We know exactly which king is being talked about in verse 31. It's a guy, he's the king of Syria, king of the north, Antiochus IV is his name. And without going into too much detail, Antiochus IV is going to wage war against the Jews. And the Jews are going to rebel against his authority. And what he's going to do is mentioned here in verse 31. Forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. What's the sanctuary fortress? It's the temple. So they're going to defile the sanctuary fortress... And then they shall take away the daily sacrifice because the Jews offered a sacrifice every day that the priests would offer, the people would bring sacrifices um, to be offered. And they will place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So what's going to happen is he's going to set up the abomination of desolation there in the temple in his day. This is by the way, 167 years before Christ, 167 BC, is when he does this. And he does it. Here's what happens. He seizes control of Jerusalem. He takes the temple. He goes into the temple, and he has them build a statue of Zeus that looks like him. It has his head on it. And that statue is put in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. And then he orders a pig to be sacrificed on the altar. Now, you guys probably know enough about kosher laws to know that that is not allowed, right? So that is the abomination of desolation. But here's the problem. Jesus, sitting here around 30 AD, roughly, is saying, when you see the abomination of desolation Daniel talks about, run away. But that happened 167 years before Jesus was born. Here's why. Here's the thing. A lot of people mistakenly think that Daniel 11 is what Jesus is talking about. He's not. There are two that Jesus talks about, desolations. The other one is in Daniel 9. So if you could go back with me to Daniel 9, we're going to read one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible. Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 24, okay? Most of the book of Daniel, again, like Mark 13, Mark 13 is always interpreted as referring to the, or not always, but often referred to the ending of time. Most of the book of Daniel is also often interpreted as referring to the end of time. It's not. Book of Daniel is mostly about the War of the Maccabees that starts in 167 BC. The Maccabean War, which happened after the abomination of desolation is set up. If you know your Middle Eastern history, you know Jewish history, you know that. <clears throat> Here is the one point in the book of Daniel where he really fundamentally changes topic. 
And he says, it's, it's just, this is the only passage in Daniel that deals with this issue. It is remarkable. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, that is for the people of Israel, and for your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, that is to fulfill all of the prophecies that we've laid out, and to anoint the most holy. It says you have 70 weeks for all of these things to happen. Now, you have to understand a couple of things here. 70 weeks, that number 70, it doesn't, it, it actually is kind of, it's not that it's mistranslated, it's that it's hard to translate. When it says 70 weeks, what it actually is saying is 70 sevens, because the Jews had a word for a group of seven, any group of seven, like we have a word dozen, they had a word for a group of seven. So when he says 70 weeks, he actually means 70 groups of seven. So it's not clear whether it's a week or 70 months or 70 years or, or you know, things of that nature. Here's the thing. He is definitely talking about groups of seven years. So he's saying you have 70 weeks, that is seven groups of seven years. So that means 490 total years, 490 total years to do all of the things that I'm about to give you in this vision. And then the last part that I just read to you, he says, and to anoint the most holy. That word anoint is the Hebrew word that relates to the word Messiah. What is the Messiah? He is the one who has been anointed. So what he's telling you is, in 490 years, the Messiah is basically going to do the things that he is supposed to come to this world and do. Now, this is where it gets pretty remarkable. Look at verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build the city of Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, comes, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Okay, so what did he just say? What he said is, understand that you have 69 weeks, 62 and 7. 69 weeks until the Messiah, the Prince, comes. After the decree comes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, when was the decree given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem? It was the Persian king, Artaxerxes Longimanus. Artaxerxes gave a decree. You can read about this in the book of Nehemiah. To rebuild the walls of the city and rebuild Jerusalem. That happened in 457 BC, 457 years before Jesus. 69 sevens is 483 years. Go from 457 to 483 years forward. What time period are we looking at? It's about 30 AD, which is when Jesus is here in Jerusalem at this particular time. Daniel actually tells you when Jesus is going to come, when the Messiah is going to come. 69 weeks. Now, after this, he's going to talk about exactly what Jesus is talking about in Mark 13. Look at this. After the 62 weeks, meaning after the period I just referenced, the 62 and 7. After that, Messiah shall be cut off. That is, he's going to be killed. So after those 69 weeks, Messiah is going to be killed, but not for himself. And we understand this. Because he doesn't die for his own sins. He doesn't die for any crime he committed. He dies for us, not for himself. And then what's going to happen after this? The people of the prince who is to come, and that is the devil, right? Satan, the dragon of revelation. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. What is the sanctuary? The temple. What is this talking about? It's talking about when the Romans are going to come in, starting in 66 AD, 40 years after Jesus died roughly, and all the way up to 73, the war of the Jews when they will destroy the temple. That's what's going to happen. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. There's that word, desolations. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, again, this is vague. It's hard to really pinpoint. But it's easy if you understand the history. The war of the Romans and the Jews, the Jewish-Roman war, lasted seven years. It begins in 66. It ends in 73 when the fortress of Masada is taken. The last holdouts of the rebellion against Rome is, are, is destroyed. And right in the middle, three and a half years in, right smack in the middle, what happens? The temple is destroyed, 70 AD, three and a half years in. So what does it say? 
He shall confirm a covenant for one week, seven years. In the middle of that week, he brings an end to the sacrifice and offering. No longer will the Jews be offering offerings because the temple has been destroyed. And then he says this, and this is such an incredible passage. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, the desolation of abominations, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out by the desolate. Then what's going to happen after the daily sacrifice is taken away, after the temple is destroyed, what's going to happen? There will be an abomination of desolation. When the Romans take the temple, what do they do? They come up and they set their Roman standards on the temple. You guys all know the Roman standard maybe, the eagle? It's a, it's a pole with an eagle at the top. And the Romans then began to offer sacrifices to their eagle right there in the, holy of, in the place that was the Holy of Holies. What does that say? On the wing of abominations. Now, listen, the Bible has lots of prophecies and people who are skeptics who don't believe, the way they answer how the Bible could have prophecies of the future is they say, well, the prophecy was actually written after the fact and included later. Just so you know, there's no scholar in the world, none, who would try to argue that the book of Daniel was written after Jesus was born. There are countless quotes and references from periods long before Jesus was born that references the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was included in the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was first put, started to be put together in 250 BC. There's no question the book was there. This is a remarkable prophecy. So go back now to, to Mark chapter 13. And think about what he says again. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, run away. Pray that you are not nursing or pregnant, because if you're pregnant and nursing, you might get taken captive. He says, get out. And what I want you to understand is the early Christian Jews understood this prophecy. They did get out. In fact, it's a part of the narrative of what has unfolded between Jewish and Christian relations over history that a lot of the Jews who survived the war felt a great deal of betrayal at the hands of the Jewish Christians because the Jewish Christians had fled prior to the war. And they fled because of this prophecy. Jesus said, get out of Dodge. Continuing on, verse 19. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation which God created until this time nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Come on, Tom, this has to be about the end of time because it talks about a tribulation that will be greater than anybody has ever experienced before or after, right? It's understandable why people would read this and think it's talking about the end of time. But I, I, I want to push back on this by just a couple of things. The first thing I want you to consider is this. When it comes to suffering, people suffer as individuals, right? And there is just a degree at which suffering is just unimaginable. And when you look at all of the really horrific events throughout human history, however big in, in, in scope you might be thinking about, whether it's the Holocaust or, or whether it's about just World War II in general where 120 million people die, or whether it's the great famines of the 20th century like, like the great famine of, in China in the 1960s where 40 million people starved to death, or you know it, whatever it is, it's, it's the individual suffering, and there is just a point at which, oh, it's so bad, you can't fathom. And that is actually never really multiplied. We always think of it in numbers because we're used to reading in school about how 120 million people died. So we always think in quantity. But pain is a qualitative thing, not a quantitative thing. Individuals feel it. And so that's one thing I want you to consider when he says this. But here's the second thing. It is a saying. It is a, it's an idiom in the Jewish language to say something like this. It's never been like this and it never will be again. It's just a manner of speech in the language. It's a hyperbolic manner of speech. And I'm not just making this up. We don't have time to turn there because we're, well, basically out of time. But um, we don't have time to turn there. But jot these down. You can read them later for yourself. Read 2 Kings 18.5 when you get a chance. 2 Kings 18.5. It talks about the king Hezekiah. Now, the king Hezekiah was a very good king. And when the author of Kings describes him, it says, never in the history of Israel... Was there a king so great? And never would there be a king like him again. And then the same author, same book, just five chapters later, 
Chapter 23, verse 25. Chapter 23, verse 25, it talks about King Josiah. And you know what it says about Josiah? Never was there a king like him before, and never would there be a king like him again. It's a hyperbole, it's an idiom, and what's it saying? He's saying they were really good. They were so good. They were not like other kings. What is Jesus saying when he says here, there never was a time like this before? What he's saying is, is that it's so bad. And when you read the story of the wars of the Jews, it was catastrophic. When you read about what the people who stayed in the city went through, when you read about how many people were slayed by the sword, when you read about the people who died from, from, from pestilence that had struck the city, disease, because people were being cramped up in these really tight spots, uh, because the Romans were laying siege to them, they died horrible, painless deaths. People reverted to cannibalism during this time. The historian Josephus, who wrote the book, The War of the Jews, where he recounts what happened, he says the rivers flowed with blood because of all the death. It was a catastrophic period. And Jesus says, when he says that um, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, what he means is if the Lord hadn't shown some mercy, everybody within would have died. But for the sake of the elect, because Israel was God's chosen people, he saved. He saved people. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Verse 21, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will rise even after all of this and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. I've told you all these things beforehand. He's saying, if somebody comes after all this and says, oh, I'm the Messiah now, don't believe it. He says, I've warned you ahead of time. I've warned you ahead of time these false prophets are going to come. Don't believe it. And sure enough, just a mere 40 years after all of this happened, or 50 years after this happened, I mentioned him earlier, Simon Bar Kokhba will lead the largest revolt. He's going to be the guy that most people will think are Jews, and that will lead to another war against the Romans in 132. So, so it's like, it's Jesus is just point for point saying what's happening. Now, the tough one for me. This is the toughest one for me to defend. So, because when you read this, you're going to go, Tom, this is clearly end of time. Verse 24, but in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fail, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man, that is Jesus, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest parts of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. It talk, it's talking about Jesus coming. He's riding in the clouds. It's, it, he's coming, right? And it talks about the sun being dark and the moon not giving his light. I want you to turn back to the book of Isaiah. And don't worry, we don't have a lot more. Go back to Isaiah chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 9. Chapter 13, verse 9. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. The land here, it's talking about Babylon. I don't, verse 1, it, he gives the context. He's talking about the kingdom of Babylon that was ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. So the land that is going to be judged is going to be the land of Babylon, ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. And it says this, He will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. You might say, well, how do I know this isn't about the end of time? Look at verse 17. He's explaining himself. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, the Medo-Persians. 516 BC, the Medo-Persians fight against the Babylonians and destroy Babylon. That happened. This is a prophecy about that particular period of time. You have to understand that all the things Jesus described are things you've seen. You've all seen a solar eclipse, right? The sun is blackened. You've seen blood moons. When the moon appears red, you've seen stars falling from the sky. We've all seen these things. And the ancients, when they saw these things, they thought that it was a harbinger of destruction to them. They always thought they were signs that destruction was coming. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, when this happens, you have to understand that destruction is coming, so please get out of the way. And by the way, you don't have to be an ancient to feel this way. People still feel this way. Um, when I saw the solar eclipse, I'm like, this feels really weird. I mean, I didn't think it was the end of time, but there was a part of me that wondered. I remember one time being at a camp when I was a youth pastor. This was very weird. I can't describe it. I still don't know what happened. The whole sky at the middle of the night outside of the cabin we were all in lit up bright red. 
I don't know, it was like it was like a giant infrared just and we walked outside and all the kids fell to their knees and they're like crying and people were like, Tom, what is happening? They're like, is Jesus coming back right now? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> because to this day, I don't know what happened. It was the weirdest thing I've ever had or experienced. When things happen like that, people see it as like a, a harbinger of the future, that something crazy is coming. And so that's what's going on here. The Babylonians are coming, harbingers are coming to warn you. Skip over now to chapter 19, verse 1. The burden against Egypt. Behold, now look at this. The Lord rides on a swift cloud and he will come into Egypt and the idols of Egypt will totter at his presence at the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother. What follows is a prophecy of what's going to happen when the Babylonians and the Persians both attack Egypt and the Persians ultimately go in and take Egypt. How does he describe it? The Lord comes on a cloud in judgment. So let's go back to Mark chapter 13. So Jesus is just describing judgment that is coming. And, and for one more thing to share with you, I got a little quote I'll put on the board up there for you guys to, to read. This is a quote from that, that historian Josephus of something that was experienced during this war against the Jews. He actually gave several examples of these harbingers in the heavens, but this is the one that is the most interesting to me. Besides these, a few days after the feast, on the 1 and 20th day of the month, Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those who saw it, like people I knew saw it. And they were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before the sun set, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about amongst the clouds and surrounding the cities. Moreover, at the feast, which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place, they felt a quaking, an earthquake, and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, let's get out of here. That's what they report seeing at this particular time. Verse 28, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. So what is he saying? Fig trees lose their leaves in the winter. But know that when you start to see the bud come out, that summer's close because it starts to bud in the spring. So he says you need to be able to read events. You see the buds come out in spring, you know summer's on its way. And he says, so too, when you see the things that I've just told you, know that it is near at the doors. Know that this is going to happen then. Assuredly, now this is the key thing, verse 30. I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Who's he talking to? It's his people. It's the disciples sitting there on the Mount of Olives. This generation, you guys, will not pass away till all of this is done. Okay? That's what he's saying. The famous philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote an essay called Why I Am Not a Christian. And it's mostly, even though Bertrand Russell was a great philosopher and was really smart, it's mostly a bad essay. And I don't just say that because I'm a Christian. It was like, shockingly, I was a philosophy major. And maybe I was just a BSU philosophy major. I guess maybe who am I to question Bertrand Russell? But it seemed to have some really bad arguments. But he had one decent argument. And that one decent argument was this. He said, Jesus taught his disciples that he was coming back during their lifetime as is evidenced by this passage. That's what he said. We know that didn't happen, so it had to be false. And here's the thing. No, he did tell them this generation would not pass away to all these things, but it was the destruction of the temple that he's talking about. It was the destruction of the temple. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, verse 32, before we read it, let me just say this, and we don't have time to turn there. Go back and read Matthew chapter 24 later when you get a chance. In Matthew 24, Jesus, it has a little bit of a reckoning of what happens. In Mark, the disciples ask Jesus, tell us when the temple is going to be destroyed. In Matthew, they ask two questions. They say, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And 
What is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? For this reason, when I look at Matthew 24, I go, some of that might actually be about the end of time. I always grant that. It might actually be. But Matthew 24 ends in the same way Mark does. He says, this generation will not pass away till you've seen all of this. And then he goes, but, verse 32, of that day and hour, that is, of the return of the Lord, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. And here we get to the point I want you guys to take home. Why is it Christians have long been fascinated with the study of the end of time? I don't really know. I can't explain it entirely psychologically. And I get it, by the way. I am too. I've spent years doing so. It's not like I'm chastising anybody for it. But we have been obsessed with it. And the church has long focused on it. And the thing is, is the Bible is just super clear about what we're supposed to know about the end and about Jesus' return. And that is that we don't know when it's going to happen. And in spite of that, we try to say it all the time, right? We, like, I mean, I was just looking through, I mean, there are like eight famous predictions over the next few years of famous preachers who've said Jesus is coming back in the next eight years. One of the biggest ones in American history was 1844. A great preacher who had a huge following said on October 22nd, 1844, Jesus is coming back and everybody sold all their goods and they all came and they all met with him on a mountaintop and they waited and it didn't happen. And people call that the great disappointment as people were very disappointed. Um, there was a guy who, who proclaimed in that Jesus would come back in 2013, and he didn't. So they, then he said, oh, revision, 2015. And then he didn't then, so he said 16, not then, then 19. Um, and he hasn't come back in any of those. And I don't know why people keep wanting to do this, because it's not there, right? The founder of the Calvary Chapel movement said, 1981, the Lord's coming back by 1981, Chuck Smith. Don't ever guess. He's, it says here, not even the son. No one knows. And you're not supposed to be spending time trying to figure out. And he goes on and he says this. This is what you need to do. And this is the point I want you to take home. Verse 33. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you don't know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants. So a guy leaves his servants in charge of the house and to each his work. And he commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, the crowing, the crowing of the rooster in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And then I say to you all, watch. People think watch means let me read the newspapers and figure out when the end is coming. No. In this parable, the master is leaving, and he has given the servants a job to do. What does being watchful mean? It means doing your job. And what is our job? It is to preach the gospel. It is to bind up the wounds of the poor and the brokenhearted. It is to free the oppressed. It is to do the justice of God in the world. And it is not to slack and sleep and waste time. That's what we're supposed to do. And when are we not watching is when we're not doing those things. It's when we're saying, Jesus isn't coming back tomorrow. I've got all sorts of time. He's saying, be faithful and be faithful now. Because you don't know when the master's coming back. And it's supposed to be that way. Don't focus on when, focus on what he's called you to do. Do those things. That's what you're supposed to do as a Christian. And let all the other things happen as they may, because the Lord is in control of those things. You don't need to fear. No need to fear. 